This podcast contains explicit language and plot spoilers. My name is Charles Horgan. I'm a Purple Heart veteran, potentially the first OIF-1 Purple Heart veteran. No, the second Purple Heart veteran because of the travel distance of the shrapnel that went through my friend and I. In any case, I have a complicated relationship with war movies these days, the most action-y of action films, and I'm revisiting them with a friend of mine, Dr. Aaron Donaldson. What am I gonna do? And our somewhat silent co-host here, or hovering engineer, Eli Leonard. Hi, Charles. <laughs> what was that one called? That one was called uh, Iraqi Freedom? OIF-1. OIF-1. Operation Iraqi Freedom 1. Yeah, so March 22nd, 2003, we went over the bridge and took a rocket to the Humvee, and so... Sergeant V's arm was up, and I was standing right behind that arm, and so technically he got it first. Bugger! So yours has a little two on it? Yours has like a little number two mm-hmm. on it, and it will forever be one less, and you have to explain that everywhere you go. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Thanks for clarifying. I was. I was thinking the other day, I was trying to, I wondered if you knew the date, and I figured, of course, he knew the date. Uh, and I was mm-hmm. also like, what was the, which Iraqi war was it that there was? We're looking at our fourth batch episode. We have a batch of movies that we watch, which includes the Dam Busters from 1955, the Hidden Fortress from 1958, and Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope from 1977. Charles, this is the fourth batch for the Real War Project. You're making the batches. We can hopefully, will, look back this episode across the rest of the batches that we've done. The first one was formative war films. The second one, nuclear annihilation. The third one, Afghanistan. The fourth one we're calling, like, Star Wars cultures. Like, there are different cultures that go into making Mm. war culture and different cultures that go into making Star Wars. We said Star Wars did not invent war culture. It inherited it. Um, And... You, God, you, I love some puns. Mm-hmm, right. You chose the Dam Busters, the Hidden Fortress as the two preludes. Clear in terms of like the formal compositional components. And you had said in the chat that one of the reasons you picked this was because your metaphor was like fingerprints, where it's like there are clear like shot for shot moments and line for line moments that informed Star Wars from these movies. Like, do you have anything else to say about, like, this batch or to contextualize this batch? Why are we doing a whole batch on Star Wars was one of the questions that I had had for you. And I'm curious what your thoughts might be at the top. Well, we're doing war films for this um, for this project. And it's easy to say to just go through a bunch of war films to go through. Like, I mean, I've been putting a lot of thought into it. Eli and I have talked about this 
um, a bunch, you know, it's like, it's very easy to just say, I want to do a bunch of Hill movies and do like Porkchop Hill and Hamburger Hill and something else. And, um, but there is more to war movies than just that. Like there are, there are influences in our lives and heroes that we admire that we want to emulate somewhat when you are at that age when you maybe want to join the military or leading up to joining the military. Or, you know, there are people that never joined the military but root for it like some weird team and um, idolize them in some strange ways, you know? And they they are informed by these films. And some of these films they are informed by even if they have never seen mm-hmm. them. Yeah. I tell my students a lot, you may not care about Star Wars, but Star Wars cares about you and you've heard it. It informs your world. Like it's something that contextualizes your experience in a lot of ways. And a lot of students will ask me like, you know, why do I go around and watch all of these movies and give credence and legitimacy to all these movies? And it's like, you can't just ignore it and hope it goes away. That's not how it works at all. You have to understand it. Uh, you know, I am an avowed pacifist and, uh, I had said a couple episodes ago that if I am a pacifist sitting down for 40 weeks or however long we're going to spend on this to study war cinema seems like a weird thing to do unless you like realize that critical education is all about reverse engineering the ideology, the mindset, the culture that makes the thing so appealing. The United States really celebrates war culture. One of the big takeaways we've had so far, and it could just be because of our sampling method. Our sampling method is not at all scientific, like big shocker here, where it's more of a convenience sample and just kind of shooting from the hip. But um, in, in part because of that, but but we would argue pretty much across the, 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 the genre, you're getting a lot of adventure themes and it's a lot of fun. It, it always seems to, or, or frequently seems to feel like something we all want to do and something that's enjoyable. We're going to talk about these three movies in particular in terms of more particular like components and tropes in a second, but I wanted to start with some sound politics, if that's okay. A uh, quick little contextualization for what we're going to do. We're going to listen to three songs. And Teresa Brennan in um, The Transmission of Affect describes affect as a physiological shift that is accompanied by a judgment. When you hear music, that's a physiological shift. Little hairs in your ears change and your brain does a bunch of stuff. Blood goes places. Your body moves to music. And you experience that in your conscious awareness post-judgment. You don't get to pick how you feel about music. You feel about it the way it makes you feel. And then you get to decide if you like that feeling or not. And that's where we debate with music or art or cinema or whatever it is. So we're going to listen to three different kinds of uh, songs here in a second. And what um, Sarah Ahmed will tell us is that we can stick affects onto objects. We stick abjects onto things like war, for instance, war culture. How does war feel? What does it feel like? We will stick affects onto things with sound effects, with metaphors, obviously with music. So here's the first one from 1955. We're just going to listen to like maybe 10 to 15 seconds of this. And I want you to just make a list of judgments. Just a list of like, how does it make you feel? Like, like, what's your motivation? What are your, um, your orientations, perhaps? Anything that comes to mind is like a judgment. Ready? Here it is.
play that music over a guy trying to find a ported John on a uh, deployment that he can jack off in. <laughs> That's a judgment. That's a... <laughs> oh, and he keeps opening it up and he's seeing somebody in there like, oh, <laughs> gotta go into another one. It's overflowing with shit. Opens that one. There's like two people in there already using it. Can't use that one. <laughs> right, yep. Goes behind a bush. There's No, and he thinks they're weird and he goes into the next one and then the next one is also completely filthy and he's like well there's no freaking choice and then he goes off into the woods and he goes to jerk off and then he turns around and there's like an entire battalion parked right there and they can all see him and that's that music okay um yeah that was This is a man trying to shit off the side of a tank now on a moving tank column. Or like, or like out the window of a B-52 at 40,000 feet. Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> freezing his ass off, just taking a crap out of the open bomb doors. Yeah, just watching it hit the propeller as it... <laughs> yeah, on the plane behind you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, here's, here's this one. Ready? I don't know why, but I'm seeing big flying blue words. Before before a woman gets interrupted while she's taking a shit inside of a robot. Why <laughs> she's crouched over it like that. That's why she's crouched over and then she has to rely on that one. She's like, oh my god. It all goes towards penis and fart and shit humor uh, with Charles and uh, the military, it would seem, because that's, like, where their priorities are frequently. Uh, they have a lot of that shit to deal with. Um, <laughs> well, that's what happens. Exactly. you got to deal with very basic, basic issues when you're in the military, right. and nobody cares about those issues. People don't care about them. I think it's good that you said what you said about seeing the big letters in the sky with the Star Wars song there at the end. It's impossible. Impossible, impossible to think of anything but Star Wars when that song hits. It is impossible. You cannot unsee Star Wars. You you see it immediately when the music hits. You can't take your your mind anywhere else. It's so hard to deprogram it. With the second song we heard, that was obviously from um the Hidden Fortress. Um, folks that have seen that movie may recognize it. Folks that understand it as like an iconic presence or something would be like, "Yep, there it is. I've heard it." Everybody else is going to hear it as something that sounds like a a thing. You get it? It'll they'll all say generally it sounds like maybe old or like an old movie film or something like that. 
but it's not. It has gravitas to it. It feels heavier than that first one that you played. The first one felt like a jaunt. Yeah. It felt like a delightful adventure, a romp. The second one felt like there was gravity to the situation, that things meant something. And that one feels like. A car commercial, because that's what it was. Mm -hmm. Right? That's what it was. Yeah. The first one felt incredibly like frivolous. It felt fun. It felt kind of silly. Star Wars feels kind of fun too, but it doesn't feel silly. And so it feels adventurous, but it still has that heaviness to it, which then is like emphasized by a gigantic like screen eating ship that flies <laughs> through the through the screen. Yeah. You know, it's like Star Wars wants to be big and it definitely is, but it also is specifically wanting to be an adventure. Yeah over it like it strips from it the gravitas of two of the movies that i feel like it hangs out with you know yeah can we do one more yeah another march from the damn busters that we listened to in the episode it's predicated on pomp and circumstance which is the song that you hear when, if you ever go to any graduation mm-hmm. and in the episode we talked about how um the song sounds like it could be played at a graduation and how in britain it became this iconic march where it's played before like sporting events it's played when any like important people come out they'll play it at like graduations and things before they play pomp and circumstance um all of these songs make it feel fairly... The first one, no. But if you take that one and say it's from the same movie and it's one of the most prominent songs from that movie, they all make war proud. They all stick, I feel, pride onto the experience in their own way. Um, I think that they they stick adventure in their own way. You'd have to get a music theorist. Um, we talked about Scott Murphy there at um, Kansas who literally breaks it down like chord by chord and tells you that like a major fifth major and a major fourth minor are going to do different things to your imagination because of the way music works. And I'm putting works in big quotes, a physiological shift accompanied by a judgment. These songs, um, you're right, Charles, like the first two feel a lot more preeminent than Star Wars. Star Wars, we had said in that episode, was like a cotton candy war movie. It's just, you eat it, it dissolves, and it's so delicious, you just want to put all of it in your face at once, I guess. Um, so the first movie is Dam Busters. What year is Dam Busters, Aaron? I don't have that. 1955. Right I've got it. Yeah, I'm Okay, ready. yeah. So Dam Busters comes out the same year as Roman Holiday, right? Like, I feel like Audrey Hepburn gets her Academy Award that year. Mm, I love her. Um... Uh, Dan Busters is about a legendary real life um, bombing mission to destroy dams over an industrial section of Germany. And you have to do that using some science. It's not so easy to just bomb a dam. And thanks to the hard work and um, thoughtfulness of a bookish, delightful Englishman, um, some very brave and determined pilots are able to cheer the N-word. Yeah, yeah, they have a dog named the N-word, and they use it as a code word for the destruction of one of the dams, and they destroy several dams on a single raid and kill 1,600 people, including 1,000 workers. 
uh, and 600 Germans, we said that is the Dam Busters. What happens in the Hidden Fortress? The Hidden Fortress, we have uh, two guys from a village that seemingly hate each other, that have sold mm-hmm. all of their things in order to go partake in a war. Uh, they show up to the war too late, are mistaken for uh, the enemy, are stripped of all of the things that they have sold their their homes for, and are enslaved, and that pretty much happens all before the movie starts. <laughs> they, and then they, they witness a samurai kill a guy, and yeah. uh, separate, and get back together, and find a guy named Roku Rotu, Rota, who is a, like, general? Absolute yeah. stud, total beefcake, yeah. just... Thighs and, of steel, thighs of absolute granite. He's a guy that demands respect and baby, I'm going to give it to him. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah. He shows up in a, uh, he shows up in a play suit and boy, I'd play with him all night long. That is played by the legendary actor Toshiro Mifune. And I think we're going to see a lot of him over the course of this project. And, um, and this movie, uh, we'll talk about it later, but this movie has, um, him and a princess and they are trying to find their way home through very dangerous borders and roving soldiers and things like that. And it is quite an adventure. And the entire time they're sort of learning things about themselves and two bickering assholes also draw straws to rape a woman. Yeah. They get bribed basically the whole time. Eli calls it a rapey jaunt there in the chat because that's pretty much what it is. Um, Dambusters Act 3, we said, the bombing raid itself, and especially the two characters that Charles is talking about, the, the quote, lesser characters, uh, and definitely also the princess. These are the things that are just directly important to the third film, right? Like, probably don't need a big long synopsis of Star Wars, but Charles, how would you describe that movie in a nutshell? Those first two movies put together in space, baby. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah sure mm-hmm. like, rural farm boy meets religious fanatic in the desert and joins a rebellion and gets um captured and escapes and rescues a princess kind of by accident and then leads an assault on a planet killing moon base and blows it up and kills who knows how many people they don't care to tell us or show us yeah, kills a million people. A million. Yeah, um, that's what Eli is saying there in the chat. One of the tropes that we talked about in um, Movies, Myths, and the National Security State in terms of like the national security cinema imaginary, definitely the settler colonial cinema imaginary, is a spectacle of slaughter. Total happenstance, but you see it across these three movies. Dambusters makes a definite spectacle of the slaughter. It does it in a weird way, but it shows the, everything flooding and all the water like tearing everything. And we see we just get a lot of shots of that. Um, Star Wars, we talked about how the Death Star explodes very evocatively. <laughs> the camera lens hanging down there underneath it. Mm-hmm. Hidden Fortress doesn't really do that. You get a prison rebellion at the beginning that makes its way into some stairs. You get a really cool, like, duel. No spectacle of slaughter. The, the, we yeah. also talked about how it doesn't fixate on the weapon so much as you'll see in all the other American and so-called Western cinema. It'll be a lot of gear-up gun moments compared to 
hidden fortress, which didn't really do that. Again, very small sample size, not making any conclusions. But what were you going to say, Charles? I was going to say that the swords, the sword particularly as wielded by Tashira Mufuni and the other general, um, his spear, um, seem so much more dangerous than almost all of the other weapons seen in the other movies. Oh, absolutely. They are treated with a they are treated with a respect and fear that that people don't mess around with it. Like they just like don't want to have anything to do with it when it comes at them. Yeah. And it's like in Star Wars the blaster doesn't hold that gravitas at all mm-hmm. whatsoever. And they wield the lightsaber more like a claymore. I'm not a fencer, but I know there's lots of different ways to fight people with long pointy things. And um, my ancestors come from a place called Scotland and their swords were like seven feet long. And you basically just cleave people with it. You just use the weight of the object and the blade. And between the two, you're going to get the result you're looking for if you can make some impact. And that's very different than what Charles is talking about with this like seven or eight foot long spear with a huge blade on the end. The duel in the Hidden Fortress, you can see how that informs later versions. George Lucas had the budget to do a lot of things, but he couldn't pay all the choreographers to do all of the kinds of fencing fights that he wanted until later in his life. You get an interesting duel, but that does not seem nearly as threatening. And you're right, that fight scene in Hidden Fortress carries a lot. It's good, it is scary. Uh, And then when they make their escape, and the other dude is wielding his thing around, like, same story. But, and, and, and the camera spends a lot of time on that, because their ability to do that violence is very important. And I hope we get to talk a little bit about toxic masculinity and all that, because we get some weird cross-sections across these movies. The scientist, the boffin, we're going to say analytically here. Uh, the scientist and uh, Roku Rota and Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, uh, like Obi-Wan. Really interesting cross-section for toxic masculinity that all fit the stencils, we're going to say, in very different ways. But um, the point is this. That violence is inherent to the character, so we see it in all of it, but the spectacle, the scale of the spectacle, for Star Wars, it's from the minute the movie starts with a screen-eating ship, Charles says, which, by the way, is blasting, blasting, blasting (laughs) another little ship, and they blast the whole movie, and, like, no surprise here. And then the end is one huge planet-sized explosion, the second of the movie. Like, that's a lot. And then you get Dam Busters, which is mostly a scientist building some things and airplanes flying low and dropping the stuff. But you do get quite a lot of time spent at the end with the dams being busted and the water flowing and all the people running and the overhead shots of the flooded fields. Scale is very important here. You get it for that spectacle. I think that... The individual capacity, the masculine individual capacity to do, conduct, operate violence is fundamental. That's elemental. That's inherent to the settler white patriarchal colonial myth we're talking about that I'm looking at anyway. But the spectacle of slaughter on the massive scale, according to the book, is going to be a primarily national security state, like a.k.a. like Western war imaginary thing i don't know i'm excited to see more movies to see if it holds up but Mm -hmm. yeah i have a bunch of like interesting theories about things um like i have a theory as to whether or not 
there is a specifically different type of film that comes from a side that won. Yeah. Does Hidden Fortress feel different in its messaging than these other two movies because it comes from a side that lost? A couple things to say about this. I don't want to go off before you have more time to say what you want about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hidden Fortress is not about a real war, correct? It's an imaginary war. Right, yeah. It based on These are imaginary. Know, I mean, it's rooted, it's like mythos, right? These are fake particulars of maybe a historical story. Dambusters is like based on a true story. This was a real person. This is a thing that happened. Star Wars, we said long time ago, far, far away. They don't want to talk about it, which is half the fun. And Eli says this in the chat, and this is what I was going to say. And again, I hear Shelby Foote, who I typically hate, but makes a good point here. Patton says... Like, America's never lost a war, but that's a weird thing for them to say because Patton's grandfather lost a war, and it was called the Civil War, or great-grandfather lost a war, and it was called the Civil War. And and that war haunts us in the way that we talk about the Confederacy. I think it does. I think it does. And I think Eli's right. I think Vietnam haunts America, and I think Afghanistan is definitely gonna cue the Afghanistan drop from the Soviet era. Uh, Afghanistan trying to warn us but we never got to see it because it never came out and so we did in afghanistan you're right that that i do think there's a difference when we lose wars and things in how we tell the story for sure um everyone's lost a war everyone there's no one that has this is this is different though is that some people have lost a war and haven't been allowed to do another war (laughs) <laughs> there is like Japan, Japan catastrophically lost a war. Italy Fair. catastrophically lost their war. You and know, they lost like their they, war they fighting were... privileges because the result was so lopsided that they were literally denied the capacity. Germany too, until they became members of NATO. Italy until they became members of NATO. Right. right. Like, but still, but allies. still, I think the, I still think that I, We'll find out, but I have a I have a feeling that the that the stories that the Italians tell about war are going to be unbelievably bleak compared <laughs> to the stories that we tell. Our bleak right. war stories are very rare, and I think it's mm-hmm. going to take a while post Afghanistan before we as a culture stop making our our revisionist rescue stories and actually start coming to terms in our, in our films with what the fuck we've been doing for the last, since the 1960s that we can't keep riding the high, the wave of world war two. It's who we've always been. It's who we've always been. The wave we've been riding is settler colonial genocide and manifest destiny and universalization of the American dream. Again, that's movies, myths, and the national security state, but extrapolated beyond the context of that book. That book specifies specifically after World War II, which is kind of the claim that you're making, and I think it's a fair one to be like, this really takes off after World War II. But America's war imaginary is baked into it. Eli says in the chat, we aren't terribly good at self-reflection. No, we are not. Like, History. George Washington's teeth were forcibly extracted from enslaved people. American history books. George Washington's teeth were made of wood. This is not good. This is bad. This is a nation that refuses to look itself in the eyes and 
part of the reason that I think it is so smart and I'm so grateful that you did Star Wars and not just that you picked it, but that you did it in the way that you did it is because I think that it really hits on something that America is all about. There's a great interview with Alec Guinness who's like, there's nothing, the reason he did it, it was because there was nothing terrible. What's the fascination of it to you, do you think? I think a marvelous, healthy innocence. Yes. Um, Great pace, wonderful to look at, full of guts, nothing unpleasant. I mean, people go bang, bang, and people fall over and are dead. But, uh, you know, no horrors. They blow up two planets in this movie, but he's right. A sort of wonderful freshness about it, a kind of like a wonderful fresh air. Mm. When I came out of the cinema into Tottenham Court Road, I thought, oh, Lord, London's awfully sort of gritty and dirty and full of rubbish, isn't it? Because this had all been so um, I think that's invigorating. A, absolutely right, actually. One of the few movies I've come out of recently where I really felt happy and uplifted when mm. I came out. I'd enjoyed myself, mm. actually. That's all. It's a, a version of our history. It's made of wood. It's a war made of wood. You get it? It's like it's cotton candy war. And I feel like, as I've been saying throughout this project, this is who we've always been. And you're right that after World War II, it really, really takes off. But I feel like we will never turn that corner. We will never turn that corner because you can't see the water if you're a fish. And what makes the like American war imaginary, what makes our culture is a war like rhetoric and a war mythos ethos logos all of it it's just all baked in there i don't know like what do you see as different from hidden fortress to dam busters and star wars like like the uk has an interesting presence in this conversation surviving the blitz and surviving their history you know if you go back far enough you're gonna find a bunch of people showed up took them over and then they're like we will bring war to the world in order to stop that from ever happening again um and you know they've had successes and failures they made damn busters, unheard of in America, iconic in the UK. And then you've got Star Wars compared to Hidden Fortress. Do you see differences, Charles? Like, what makes you say that? Oh, definitely. Um, well, first off, I'm going to say um, in reference to the wooden teeth and telling history wrong. Um, this will be my thought in regards to to that thought and Lone Survivor, which is that... Right. If you were to tell the story completely right, people could watch that, particularly ones in the military who flock to military stories, and they could think, oh, that's how it fucking went down. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get myself into that situation. What do I do in that situation? Instead, you think, shit, I just should have had more ammo. You know, like it just, they just needed one more dude out there. It, yeah. It would have been me. And <laughs> right. It goes so far in the opposite direction that that it creates a myth. The wooden teeth, he had extracted teeth of of his slaves. Um, and then you go so far in the opposite direction where you say wooden teeth. Instead of kind of landing in the middle where you're not a freak like other people, where you just had gross sheep's teeth or cow teeth or something like that or sculpted bone in your mouth. It's the difference between settler colonial genocide and the Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah. Wooden teeth is a horrible, bad idea. Those would mm-hmm. not work as teeth. Okay. You could not consistently... You're not going to help watch Lone Survivor and learn how to get out of that situation unless you really <laughs> dig deep and you're like, wait, hold on a second. <laughs> Same thing with wooden teeth. You're going to think, oh, in a pinch, I can use wooden teeth. That's what our forefather did, and he was a fucking genius. And guess what? 
They're going to splinter <laughs> up in your mouth. They're going to come apart. They're going to yeah. get soft and useless in your mouth. Yeah. Bad idea. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. with the movies here, yeah. we yeah. have um, now, <laughs> now on to the less interesting point. We have we have two movies about triumph, right? We have yeah. we have the Dam Busters, mm-hmm. and we have Star Wars. Both of those movies are not just about triumph, but they're about triumph and destruction. Mm-hmm. In Hidden Fortress, we have the triumph of them getting to safety, Evasion. and we have yeah. the triumph of them of of them rejecting cruelty. Mm-hmm. That was the other thing. We had mm-hmm. a character mm-hmm. that learned to over to use her power that her she had moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, to 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 assert herself with compassion and and it pays off and people learn from her. It turns the heart of an enemy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It it teaches another guy that that giving your word to a total pile of trash is not worth anything at all. Like Darth Vader joins the rebellion is basically what happens. Eli, play the play the clip from uh from the Wild Bunch where the guy says it's not who you give your word to or something. It's not your word. It's who you give it to or some shit like that. That ain't what counts. It's who you give it to. That's what it's about. That's like what what the Hidden Fortress is is kind of about, and it's about compassion, and it's not about her raising an army and wiping out her enemies. It's about her hopefully learning to to be a strong leader and to hope you know lead better. Yeah. Who knows? It it yeah. le- it ends on a hopeful note that she's gonna kick ass and not keep doing what was going <laughs> what was going on. Yeah, Eli says that maybe she leads the huge war effort for vengeance in Hidden Fortress 2. <laughs> like, quest for vengeance. <laughs> but you're right. That's a really good point, Charles. I dig this point. And, and again, it speaks to the general attitude of, is this movie selling us war? One of the questions that you had asked very early on is, do I walk away from this movie like wanting to sign up, wanting to enlist? Damn busters, I think so. Star Wars emphatically, yes. It's like an like literally come to the ride, get on the ride. Like that's the whole point. This time, it's real. We've traveled to the far reaches of the galaxy. We got recruited by the Resistance, and now we're ready. Come on, Dad. We gotta go save the ship. No, we're gonna save the galaxy. Hidden Fortress, like, I want to be Rokuroda. I do. Like, he is such a badass. Oh, definitely. No, totally. I want to start doing squats tomorrow. Right? But do I want to enlist? Do I want to join the war? No. 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 I look like I'm I'm going to get effed up and enslaved, and my all my shit's going to get stolen, is what's going to happen to me in the war. I'm not Rokuroda. Yeah. yeah. And all the cool people are mm-hmm. on the outside of that war all the cool people in that movie that's a that's fascinating i dig it it'll be fun to, to check that back a couple of times as we go um do you have any final thoughts yeah go yeah because I, I was gonna say maybe post-war japan culturally is thinking about why did they get into this you know like why did they why did they do that you know like maybe at some level, they're thinking about the cruelties that they inflicted upon people and the cruelties that were inflicted upon them completely wantonly. You know, let's not beat around the bush. We didn't fuck up the Germans the way we fucked up the Japanese. 
And there's a reason for that. Yeah, neither Hiroshima nor Nagasaki were necessary. Or right? the Tokyo firebomb. I mean, I guess we did a Dresden and stuff, but we we yeah. firebombed the Japanese in a way right. that we did not do to the Germans. And there might be a reason for that. Yeah. Who knows? But yeah. it it's like but I wonder if the Japanese and we'll see as as we watch more of their of their war stories made by them. Um I wonder if that was if they have a different if they have different stories to tell than Americans who are overwhelmingly telling stories about how they jaunt into war with the exception of like a Stanley Kubrick who is going to be, you know, an outlier. It's hard to like determine motive, like direction and things. And I know enough to say that Japan's imperial history is pretty dramatic and um, uh, cruel in and of itself. I don't know enough to say more than that. But I think that um, what we can say is that when we watch the movies, we can ask standpoint questions like the one that you just asked, which is like, where does this movie put us? And again, we're not going to get a big enough sample size to make any kind of scientific statement. You have to pay money to get people to do a study to do that. That's how that works. But what we can do is we can take a fairly large sample and we can try to sample fairly randomly across cultures and see what we come up with. And we can make the claims that we can make at the end of that process. And I think that there's plenty to look forward to in this regard, just based on what you've already said. Um, And I do think that while the colonial history of Japan may be very militaristic, cruel, and dramatic, and all of those other things. The ways that they tell themselves that story and celebrate that story are obviously going to take twists and turns and change. Same with our own. The way different cultures glorify their warriors and soldiers um, will tell us a lot, and it's worth looking at. I don't know. You know. Eli and I have been trying to, you know, we text each other back and forth as we go down weird wormholes on imdb and wikipedia and stuff yeah and you're making the just, dirt maps right like yeah. dirt maps are y'all brainstorming <laughs> future batches and i don't get to listen to them until the batch is done mm-hmm. uh, and then we'll put them up somewhere where people can listen and yeah we might call you in for some for some bits or something like from. that for some small segments but um but yeah, overall yeah this is I where we it. discuss these things and i just have a feeling like like the british right the british are yeah. telling We'll find out. British war culture is so amazing to me. I need to learn more about it. I read the O'Brien books, Master and Commander. There's 21 of these books. I've read every single one of them, a few of them twice. Um, I've watched so many documentaries that it's hard to find new ones on the British Navy. Uh, the, The war imaginary that makes Great Britain is so fascinating because it is so chivalrous. It is so fun. It is so basic and plain. And I think Dan Busters does such an amazing job of depicting that. And this is a good moment to segue. And we're kind of up on time here too. I want to make sure we don't go too long, but I want to get all of this to what we wanted to say at the beginning. We said we were going to talk a little bit about like, like toxic masculinity, hegemonic masculinity. Typically when you hear Trujillo's stencil of hegemonic masculinity, which is force, achievement familial patriarchy be a frontiersman which means you work you're sh- you're shooting and you're white be compulsively heterosexual uh and then califel and atkinson add be unaccountable those six things you think of like arnold schwarzenegger or sylvester stallone or something like that you think of some like shoot 'em up american bad guy right yeah eli in the chat's like luke skywalker 
right? You can take Luke Skywalker, Ben Kenobi, Han Solo, all of those folks for sure. But for just a minute, we're going to take this character known as the Boffin. There's um, a bunch of different articles on this that we're trying to find. The one that I really want to get my hands on that maybe we'll have time to come back to is called The Boffin, A Stereotype of Scientists in Post-War British Films, 1945 to 1970 by R.A. Jones in Public Understanding of Science, 1997. If we weren't on break, the librarians would probably have this to me already because they are amazing. But we are on break, so I don't have that one yet. Um, but what I can look to is the guardian, which tells us that the main scientist in Dan Busters, the dude who's doing all the experiments and stuff, he's called a boffin. He's this scientist working for the government. The beginning of this guardian article written by Jenny Roan, February of 2010 says there's little that irritates scientists more than the idea of the boffin. This century old meme has at least two flavors, the befuddled, bespectacled, bad hair day or no hair day man. That is the Dan Busters guy. Socially inept, but somewhat cuddly, think Doc and Back to the Future. And there is more sinister iteration, the equally disheveled but cold, arrogant, and or mad male meddler bent on no good. There's one more definition that I'd like to pull from. This is from Eva Flicker's 2003 article um, about women scientists. And she describes Haynes's stencil of the American scientist, uh, the mad scientist or the masculine scientist. Uh, this is in 2003 before Rick and Morty. And I'm like, here comes Rick Sanchez. It's amazing. Listen, I'm not the nicest guy in the universe. He is a hardworking and very diligent worker. He emanates an aura of absent-mindedness, extreme confusion, or even madness. He is even more of an outsider in terms of a social context. He is inattentive to the people around him and is uninterested in social trends and fads. He seems socially displaced. He is not a particularly attractive hero with glasses, a work apron, ruffled hair, etc. His enthusiasm for his work could almost be called an obsession. His work attitude can sometimes be completely apolitical or even scrupulous. In the eagerness of his scientific curiosity, in some cases, he even takes the risk of causing immense damage to humanity, like, say, blowing up a dam that then kills a thousand innocent people that were just doing their jobs because they were war prisoners. Um, it's weird when theory predicts the future. Good theory should be predictive, we say, and the reason we do this theory is because these stencils are resilient. The dude in Dambusters is prototypical. One thing I love about you, Charles, is you're like, remember, this is one of the earliest versions of this. Or like, you know, we did that with uh, the big parade. And this guy represents force. Absolutely. He's trying to build a dam that can or a bomb that can destroy a dam. And it's all about channeling the water and the bomb achievement. Yeah, he feels bad about it. He has that what have I wrought moment, right? That Oppenheimer famously had and whatever. But he did it, didn't he? And he's famous for it, isn't he? The familiar patriarchy is interesting. In Dambusters, he starts out around his kids, surrounded by his kids. His daughter's like, I've got it, da-da. And she's helping him with his marbles and everything. You get it? Definitely a patriarch. This will kill crowds, da-da. Yeah, I'll kill crowds, da-da. I'll kill Soviet workers, da-da. Over there in that flower bed somewhere. <laughs> I've lost it, Daddy. I can't find it. I've got it. Here it is, Daddy. Um, the frontiersman... Um, maybe would not show up in the British movies as much as it would in American films, but he's work-oriented. He's not so much a shooter. He's definitely a white dude. He's heterosexual. He's unaccountable. He walks away. There's a big gray area around this dude where it's like, did he do it or did the pilots do it or did the government do it? Like, you get it? Like, even at the end, the, the, the pilots I like, I think we can all agree that the Germans pills. brought it upon themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
that's part of that gray area of unaccountability that Califel and Atkinson are talking about. And, and all of these movies as a cross section that we just do not have the time to get into, this would be a paper someone could write, do an amazing job of showing us that Trujillo's stencil of hegemonic masculinity bears out. Roku Rotu is this. Luke is this. There's weird deviations and exceptions that matter for sure. But by and large, we can say that these dudes are telling us that this is how you be a dude. And not just by embodying this, but embodying it at the expense of the people around them. The two lesser characters in the Hidden Fortress are there to make Roku Rotu look badass. That's the whole point. Luke yeah, Skywalker but I don't think that... Is there to I, show his transformation mm-hmm. to a Jedi? He will become a better man. He starts as a whiner. He ends up blowing up the Death Star and being a hero. I see, that's like. what I. This is what I think is so interesting about the Hidden Fortress is that is that Hidden Fortress, as opposed to Star Wars, Star Wars is about growing up from being a farmer into becoming Roku Rota, right? And the Hidden Fortress isn't about becoming Roku Rota. The Hidden Fortress wants <laughs> you to become the princess. That's what the movie wants. The movie wants everybody who comes into contact with the princess to become more like her. That's what they, that's what it wants. And, and, and what she is about is not being a fucking warrior necessarily, but she has a warrior, maybe the ethos or something like that. Very limited in her agency though, we said. Like, definitely, but it's right. But, but, but I think that's, that's almost puts us in the situation of the audience, right? Like I'm not Roku Rota. That's the thing. I, as much as I could hope to and pump iron and stuff, I'm not going to wield a sword and ride a horse only gripping it with my thighs, double holding the effing sword. My God. So amazing. I see that in my dreams. (laughs) (laughs) It was so incredible. Like I want to go to universal studios. I want the thing where they put my face in a scene from a movie and I want to be able to be put into that thing, (laughs) that thing. Oh my God. So I think hidden fortress wants you. (laughs) He's such a badass. Like the, I I think hidden fortress definitely wants you to be in, in awe of that dude. And it wants you to give you, give you some action of with him and stuff like that. But I don't think it expects you to be him. No, but he's supposed to be um, enviable. He's supposed Definitely. to be an example of what a man's supposed to be. He's but calling all the shots. When he like gets better at the end, he gets better by being more like the princess. True. And, and At and the beginning, really he was that. willing yeah. to just murk his sister for the sake of rescuing the princess. <laughs> and by the end, he's like saving his friend, kind of, you he know? did do this. This is a thing he did, and it carries very little gravity in the movie, and it's a little bizarre. Except um, to her. You know, she is, you know, when, when you were saying that she was being shrill, Aaron, she was saying rightfully, yo, that was your fucking sister. I'm not saying that she doesn't have justification to shout that way. Just like maybe Leia doesn't have justification to tell Luke he should feel a little better about things. It's just the way they go about doing it that links to legacies of misogyny in my mind Mm. are pretty overwhelming because she shouts the whole time. And we did. We talked about the ways that authority is conveyed across culture and things like that. And that makes some sense. Um, it's 
I think it's a good point. And again, it speaks to standpoint. Um, standpoint theory is where we talk about like not the representational aspects. Is it a female or not? Is there a woman in this movie or not? But just general questions about like accomplishments and orientations of statements and, and like the ways that the audience orients around this character. And I think you're really hitting on good points here about how Hidden Fortress does shift the attention away from the warrior and the war in ways that um, to me are fairly palpable. And, and that it could be tracked not only in the narrative itself, but also just in the way the camera works with characters and the music works upon, you know, moments in the movie. That is not happening in Star Wars. That is not happening in Dan Busters. Both of these movies are, it feels like, recruiting you for war in ways that are supposed to be kind of fun and enviable. The triumph and, is death in those movies. And yeah. and the triumph is not death in, in Hidden Fortress. Right. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, yeah. there is something interesting. Eli and I have kind of talked about this. Um, if you listen to Hardcore History, you know he just Dan Carlin just finished this ridiculously long series on War in the Pacific, and the mm-hmm. Japanese. He talks about how they, how when they first started expanding out into the rest of Asia, kind of had a point when they were sort of like recruiting and working on this before they just like went straight out and started killing people, mm-hmm. um, where they they were sort of advertising themselves as a as a pro-Asia alternative to Western influence and Western, you know, like invasion. And and, you know, maybe that wouldn't have been so bad if they didn't kill a bunch of people and they were more like the princess, you know? Yeah, right. Like the Westerners definitely don't have any fucking business in your in in Asia and stuff like that. And if you needed, you know, if you guys need to unionize or something to kick them out or whatever, that's not so bad. Don't kill people. Yeah. Don't don't become the oppressor yourself, you know? It's like they also just went and became the Nazis, you know, like it was, yeah. and we became, we just like we in the Philippines became the Nazis. And this is like the story over and over and over again. Um, yeah, it was good PR as Eli says, um, in the, in the chat and, and it was, you know, it's like, I feel like it got also sold to the, you know, it got sold to the Japanese youth and stuff like that, where they probably mm-hmm. heard it and said, yeah. And then when they get to an actual war, they realize that it's horrible violence and cruelty. Um, you know, Japan has an empire, Britain has an empire, Britain's empire has sort of fizzled out over the years, Japan's fizzled out in a horrible nuke, you know, like, England didn't get nuked. And so England tells different stories about war. You yep. know, I feel like they still maybe haven't started telling stories where they just can't be marveled by a fucking square formation mowing down it's charging so dudes on camels. In the O'Brien books, they talk about, they literally say someone dies, like he says they got knocked on the head. That's what they call it. They got knocked on the head. And there's no mourning at all to it. Eli in the chat says it's always an adventure for them. And it is. And there's no mortality to it at all. And it's so fascinating to see it framed as such a gay adventure, such a romp, such a, you know, like when we say that it makes you a man, again, I feel like a lot of people in America will think like John Wayne or Clint Eastwood, both just tragic icons of masculinity and hilarious given their actual stories. I love that John Wayne's afraid of horses. It's one of my favorite things about that dude. Um, anyway, 
the, the hard part is like that it, there's more to it than that. It can be the Boffin scientist. It can be Luke Skywalker. It can be, there's lots of, or it can be Han Solo or even Ben Kenobi, we said, is doing a lot of this stuff. Or the Boffin scientist, Dr. Strangelove. Right. <laughs> is Dr. Strangelove a Boffin? Discuss. Let's do another 45 <laughs> minutes on this. Because yeah, I feel this like will go into dirt yes. maps. Anything we do yeah. extra, go into dirt na- maps. <laughs> Oh, man, it's so interesting. Well, we're pretty much on time for this batch, Charles, which means it's about time for me to ask you what the next movie is, which gives us a little hint about what's coming up in batch five. And here's one thing I will say as you're kind of digging that thing up is the original plan was to do 10 batches. If my math is right, that's going to be 40 episodes because we basically do four episodes, a batch, three movies, and then a batch episode like we're doing right now. Um you can find us on Spotify now. We are definitely on there. And apparently there's a way that you can use our anchor page to leave us a voicemail. And we can like listen to that voicemail and maybe even play it on the air if it's really interesting or at the very least respond to it. We don't have an email or anything like that. So, yeah, if you want to send us hate mail or like any other suggestions of war movies to do, that's where you would do that. Um, Wherever you uh find the real war project on anchor is how you can do that. Um. There's a spin the wheel thing that Charles is showing yep, me. Here we go. We'll Let's find out what we're going to watch gonna next. Actually, he actually has a wheel to spin with a bunch of movies in it. Is that what's going on? It's these are uh, these are batches. These are named batches. Oh, the wheel of fortune batches. goes spinning around. Oh, here we go. Oh, the magic of youth. Oh, I I can see it and it makes me sad. The magic of youth is what we're going to call this one. I should have renamed it here. Um, we're going to start with, let's see here. We're going to start yeah. with a movie called The Bridge. Dad has been trying to get me to watch this movie for a while. It has looked like such a delight. Is it a TV series or a movie? Oh, no, no. This is uh, this is a movie from the, uh, should be a German movie from the 50s here. Let me find it here. In 1945, Germany is being overrun and nobody is left to fight but teenagers. The Batch uh, Wheel says that it's called Child Soldiers, which I think is going to be a fascinating batch. Uh, Obviously horrific, tragic, and sad. Though my guess is these movies are going to riff on that and have a lot of heroism in them. It's going to be interesting. We touched briefly on Child Soldiers in our episode on the Beast of War, where the main villain has a history of being lowered into tanks during World War II that, like, apparently traumatized him, we said. So this batch... And and we have seen some kids, right? We saw a drummer boy in Glory. Um, Yeah. Yeah, they get dismissed before they go into the, the battle, but they're definitely in there for sure. There's some children in Lone, Sur- Lone Survivor. Like they, there's the whole debate about whether or not they shoot the children in Lone Survivor, about whether or not they call them soldiers or not. Um, you got guys in Leavenworth doing 20 for taking home trophy guns. What do you think they're going to do for fucking two kids and an old fucking man? Fucking look at them, man. They fucking hate us. Look at them. That's not a kid. That's a soldier. That's death. Look at death. We can't do it. Look at that soldier. They are unarmed prisoners. And the second that they run down there, we got 200 Hajis on our backs. Tie them up. Tie them up. Let's get the fuck Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. This should be fun. Well, so, yeah, I guess let's say goodbye. This movie looks really fascinating. I'm looking forward to it. Charles, uh, thanks a lot. Bye.
Alderaan. There's nothing for me here now. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. Podcast about the narrative and effective politics of war movies and their productions too. Charles Horgan and Aaron Donaldson bring you a brand new podcast, The Real War Project. Dip in and out of subjects with Lauren and Sarah's irreverent points of view with the hilarious podcast, Dippers. Catch up with the week's pop culture news as well as reviews of new movies and shows, not to mention the occasional interview with Carl, Brandon, and Biggs on Not Safe for Network. Wrestlers wrestle, but sometimes they make movies too. This podcast lets you know how they do. Listen to Eric and Connor in all three seasons of Movies with Wrestlers. One by one, Jeremiah and Biggs break down influential movies and some wretched ones too in the podcast you can't miss, A Cosmic Void. 